Good morning. It's already been such a wonderful time of worship together. I promise the sermon is not as long as all these papers make it seem. This is the result of a morning of battling hot water heaters. Alexandra is sitting in our car that broke down outside. (laughs) And... Here we are. Either either I'm battling evil forces to bring a good word or I'm thwarting God's attempt to deliver you from sitting through this. <laughs> no, I joke. Um, no, but I, I'm so thankful for the worship we've already had. It's wonderful to have Larry here and, and Emily so beautifully lead us in a reflection and, and uh, take us into the call to worship. Uh, we're coming into the middle of, of a really serious, intense passage here that includes that section that, that Emily read at the beginning of the service, and so it's good to have that there, and we will, we, will, we will talk about that some. But a little bit of work ahead of time will pay us off a great deal as we get into the actual exhortations and the calling that's in the Scripture for us that comes to us from Peter today. So if you can bear with me, spend a little time before we come in to this strange language which literally has the sense of, of girding up, tightening the waistband of your mind. And as though one, it was one is ready for action. Um, the letter in today's passage comes from First Peter. It was a circulatory letter, not written just to one community under pastoral care or stewardship from, from as something like the letter uh, to the Corinthians from, from Paul, but it was meant to be shared throughout a whole region, a region in Asia Minor and sort of the eastern part of the empire on the edge of the Roman Empire, north of, of, of Judea. And Peter, of course, is said to have been martyred. Um, in the persecutions under Nero after the great fire in Rome. Um, We learned from a number of sources that that Nero had used the opportunity of one of many uh, large fires in the Roman Empire to sort of expand his own glory and his own properties and built um, self-aggrandizing structures in such a way that that rumors began to develop, a rumor that that couldn't be put down, that perhaps Nero had started the fire himself. And in order to fix his brand, to spin it, to do damage control, to get back into favor with the people, we learn that Nero actually scapegoated a strange group known as the Christians. We learn about this from Tacitus, writing at the beginning of the second century. Um, incidentally, it's the, one of the first references we have uh, uh, to Christians, and it gives you a sense of how strange this community seemed to, uh, to uh, lots of people looking in, but especially to, to people within the structure and authority and power of Rome. Tacitus wrote this uh, about the incident, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor and the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order from, from Nero, that Nero had lit the fire. 
So consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, it's interesting that Tacitus, even now there's a strange curiosity, uses the term Christus, which probably comes from Christos, the anointed one, the Messiah, but uses it as though it's a, a, a proper name. So there is still this sense of an outsider looking in and trying to make sense of this group from whom the name had suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, that's what Christianity is considered, a mischievous superstition, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of burning the city as of hatred of mankind or contempt for mankind. This is where the language of visibility problem comes from in, in, in the title for the sermon today, that on the one hand, there, there's an issue of the call to have a Christian vision in, in this new life that we're going to talk about, but there's also this issue that, that these Christians are being assessed and analyzed by a certain kind of logic. They are being seen and interpreted and, tr and tried to fit within this system that they don't quite fit in. Rome was a strictly hierarchical culture, so locations, social roles were largely fixed, and philosophically people believed that the household, the roles inside of a given household, um, had to be strictly maintained as well. It, disorder, it was sort of the first guard uh, uh, against disorder in the wider culture. Um, and and uh, so you had these sort of, and especially in a patriarchal culture, this, this, this idea of the, the paternal presence, the patriarch of the household, um, ensuring order in the wider society and how things were maintained there in that space. And the culture was pluralistic. Lots of people spoke lots of different languages. Some people, in, in the case of the Jews, the people group even have special privileges. So there, there was a certain degree of latitude, but all of that is within this, the, the, the concept that it's only made possible because the divine benevolence of the emperor allows it. And this was reinforced with imagery throughout the culture, um, often ethnic markers being left in, in, in statues showing conquered peoples, uh, constant reminders that, that it's only this permitted and controlled thing. And trying to hold together order in a pluralistic world is hard. And so some of the earliest persecutions against Christians broke out in places that were far from the center of power and had lots of different cultic identities in different languages, places like Northeast Africa especially, gets very early persecution there. And Asia Minor was not unlike that. And these places often depended on citizens or hired officials keeping an eye on order, how people were behaving and living and conducting themselves and carrying themselves out. And you can imagine in this environment how this community, these Christians, 
might feel in this kind of double-mindedness. Here they are so close to the world and the households that they grew up in, the places they were shaped by, and yet it is they're participating in this community that consists of slaves and wealthy merchants together, uh, Roman citizens, poor widows, women, men, Jews, perhaps soldiers, ex-priests and priestesses from cultic temples that were involved and woven tightly into the fabric of commerce and festivals and cultural liturgies, and here they are living together, calling one another brother and sister, something that also was met with sneering and confusion, uh, and, and, and taking the Lord's Supper together and trying to live out their life, this new life. And how hard it could be, one could imagine, and we know, I think, from our own experiences somewhat, even though we're in a very different world from Rome, we're also still human beings and we're still in our own structures and in our own time and in our own place. And, and I think we have a sense, too, that, that, that sometimes it can be easy to lose sight and to settle for these structures and powers that are so imminent and clear. You can imagine that freedom... People who are called into something new, called out of these structures, but still deeply enmeshed in them and obligated them in to them in certain ways, how disorienting that could be. And you could imagine so simply people, especially writing in this time leading up to this great persecution, where people are vulnerable to real violence, who are making choices with their life that's having real material consequences, moving out of businesses, out of lifelong practices, uh, maybe things that they studied for and apprenticed for all their lives and perhaps are, are leaving those now and, and joining themselves into these little communities and these households. And you can imagine people in the face of the threat of persecution having trouble seeing anything but the structures that they know so well might long for Pharaoh, because at least there's meat in the pot. And that's the world into which this letter bursts, writing to these Christians who are out there feeling strange <laughs> and weird and trying to figure out where they fit. And Peter says, tighten up or pick up the loins of your mind. It has the sense of, of tightening the waistband. It's language from Exodus that, uh, you know, the, the, the charge to be ready for the Lord's Passover, to eat your meal with your, <laughs> your waist coat tied tightly and ready for, for the journey that will come on the other side of, of, of freedom and emancipation. And it says, being sober... Clear and sensible, set your hope fully upon the grace that is being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus, the anointed King, the Messiah. Peter wants the Christian community to set their hope fully down, to lean into some of the strangeness that they feel. Because Peter wants them to know that it is God's actions. God's very real, living 
actions that have interrupted their lives, that have come into their lives. He uses the language that actually affirms and leads into some of the sense of strangeness that they would have in this new life. He says that uh, they're, earlier in the letter he calls them chosen ones, but he also says they're resident aliens or foreigners or wanderers, sojourners with no legal right or legal claim to their land, perhaps like Abraham wandering uh, and sojourning. And it's a strange thing to say because many of these people, the church consisted of, of Jews, uh, uh, certainly, but many of these people are, are Gentiles and, and have come into this, this life uh, in their hometowns. And yet they're considered chosen by God and therefore resident aliens. He says that they've been chosen in accordance with God's plan on the one hand, the foreknowledge of God, so spreading back to before time, before the world itself was created, before any of the institutions were established or created by, by human beings there that they live in and, and move in, and that they, that they were chosen in accordance with God the Father's plan, that they were set aside, sanctified in some way, set aside for for God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can think of how we express this in baptism, but it's, it's that, that God has done something, broken into the world, and that this was done, this thing they were set aside for, is for instruction, listening and following, undertaking a new life with this God in relationship with the Holy Spirit, and for the sprinkling with the blood of the Messiah, in some sense, coming into covenant. So he says, in a sense, if you're, if you're feeling strange, if you're feeling like a foreigner, it's because something from heaven has come in to the world that has shaped you. You were in your ignorance, and now you know you know about God. You've been called into this. And he doesn't, he refers to God in this, this intimate way. He says, now you know God as Father because of what this God has done. And if the one who called you, Peter says in our text, you, this thing happened, this, this message was proclaimed to you, you heard of this, and, and you have had this sense that God has called you and given you birth into a living hope. Um, you have been made new, born again, and the one who called you is holy. You will be holy. It's an amazing thing. He's saying not, not Paul didn't call you. Paul didn't give you religious ideas. I didn't give you uh, a, a new kind of religion, a new kind of self-help plan. God, the creator of the world, has called you. And he appeals to this language from, from Leviticus, a section of Leviticus that had a lot to do with, with sustaining life even in exile. And he says, be holy because I am holy. It's God who's done this. It's God who's given you a new life. It's God who set you aside for a special life with God. I, I don't know, but... Somehow, this time reading this passage that I've read many times, this idea of holiness 
yes, as, as the fact that God is so different from us and so other than us that we have to be so intentional about how we draw near to God, but also holiness in this covenantal relationship in this sense that when we are in relationship with God, we are different because of it. And I know what it feels like Maybe not under the threat of persecution, but I know what it feels like to feel a little uncomfortable and strange. (laughs) A little foreign in the world I've known because of how my mind and my heart are changing because of what God has done. So Peter says, yeah, your resident aliens, your sojourners, because you are chosen. And furthermore, Peter says then in this relational sense, and if you call upon this God as Father, so God has called them, and now they are in an ongoing relationship where they call on the Father, then Peter says this, this God who you call is one who you know to have been impartial. Literally the language uh, there in, in, that, in that verse is, is one who who doesn't assess people based on their innate identity, their highbornness, their lowbornness, what they have, what they don't have, their authority, their lack of authority. Um, God calls all people and invites all people to respond to this. And in a sense, Peter knows that they've experienced this because this community that's formed calls this God their father all together regardless of their identity markers and where they're assigned place in culture. And Peter says, you know each of you that you have become children. You all exist in this community in special relationships with this father. So then conduct yourself with, it gets translated up here as reverence, but it's literally with fear during your time of exile. God is the source of this life. God is the source of some of your experience of strangeness. God is the reason that you have this community that's formed and you should embrace it, grow up into it. And Peter expects that they will all have this sense and remember that, think back to the way in which they came to find themselves in this community, calling together on this God as Father, calling one another brothers and sisters and loving one another in ways that cut across so many of the social barriers uh, around them. And he says he wants them to know the nature of their redemption. It got translated as liberation up there, which, which I like. But redemption has this sense of being bought out of slavery, brought out of a system where one cannot think for oneself, uh, a system of abuse. It can represent so much of the dominating spirit of power, so much of the way that sin gets utilized in, in our world. And he says that... That whole system, you, you, you were not redeemed from that. You were not ba- back from that. You were not brought out of sin and death with gold or with silver. I think appealing to, in so many ways, the 
what seems to be and would have seemed to be and seems to us to be so easily, so many times, the very energy that makes life work, that holds things together. He says, but this, these things are, are corruptible. They're perishable. And you were redeemed from your ignorance and your slavery, not with these things, but with something far more precious. The blood of the precious blood, the unique, special blood of one who was like a lamb without blemish, like a, a spotless, anointed king. It's, it's, it's something that Peter is almost expressing the inexpressible as he talks about it, but it was, it was that. You, you saw... Jesus, you heard about. These are people who did not see Jesus, but these are people who heard the message about Jesus. They've been affected by these stories. And they have come to put their faith in this one. He reminds them of that. You saw that life, Jesus, suffering, serving, loving. You heard about what he said about God, how he announced the kingdom of God, and how he went about living into that. And Peter says, that somehow washed you, purified you, redeemed you, did something that brought you into a new life. And he wants them and he wants us to be clear about that. And he says, and so that, that, that new life, he says that, that all of you ought to respond then to that calling by being like little children under instruction. <laughs> grow up into this Father. Accept this new life. You, you have been shaped so much by your households you've grown up in, so much by the money and the power, and, and those things can be beautiful in and of themselves, and it is natural for all of us to be in a particular place and born into a particular place, but they in and of themselves are Corruptible. They can be distorted and broken and they can become abusive and they do not last. But he says, not you. Not you. You saw something in Jesus and you have come to faith in Jesus because of what God has done. God raised him from the dead and gave glory to him. This is the same God that is bringing <laughs> grace to you when Jesus will be revealed. He gave Jesus to glory. Glory to Jesus, the one who suffered and loved like this. You are participating in that. That same story of suffering and moving toward love. And that word that was spoken to you was not corruptible like these other things you see. It was imperishable. He talked earlier about having an inheritance. We, we heard that in, in Emily reading the call to worship. It is something that will not fade. It is incorruptible. It is eternal. It is being held for you, and you are being protected for that future by God's own power. And you participate in that through trust. 
And it's this amazing thing where, where Peter says, basically, you get to participate in the unfolding of this and experience it when you put your trust on that, that God's own self is revealed in what happened in Jesus and in the resurrection from the dead. You are simultaneously confessing a need for salvation and rescue, and at the same time, you are obtaining for yourself in this strange way the very goal of your faith, which is the salvation of your lives, the redemption of your very souls as you answer and respond to this calling and become caught up in the actions of God, partnering together in this new life. And he uses this this quote from Isaiah because I think he recognizes, as has been building, how this community is not a community that even saw Jesus. They, they, They heard the word announced to them And seeing is an incredibly difficult thing. We might not have been persecuted as a community, but we've been through our own experience of difficulty with this pandemic, haven't we? Uh, Separated from one another in ways we haven't wanted to be. Old things that used to bring us joy becoming difficult. And all along the way, trying also to continue to participate and live into this loving community that's been created by this one Jesus and by his love. And it's, it can be easy to lose hope and to run out of steam. And he quotes back to this, this message coming from Isaiah, uh, a text that deals very seriously with the threat of looking in other places than God for glory or being overly afraid of anything other than God who is the source of life and flourishing. He says, all flesh is grass or sarks. It has this sense of vulnerable to decay. It doesn't last forever. Um, all flesh is grass, denoting that weakness. All sarks is grass. Even the best dressed up sarks, he says. The wealthiest person. The most powerful king. The the just absolute fittest person. The the person who is high born. The person who is just even flesh that, that is just being the best possible human being it can be. That is still like flower in a field of grass. It's more beautiful than the grass, but it's still not permanent. It, the grass fades and withers, the flower falls. He says, but the word of the Lord, the living word of the Lord remains into the age, remains forever. And this is the word that was announced to you. Peter says. This is the word that has brought us and caught us up into life with God. Peter drives home this point, I think, by at the end of the letter, even though he's writing from Rome, (laughs) saying that he writes to them from Babylon. Not only is it because he's used the language of exile, he's used so much of the prophet Isaiah, 
but it has this interesting way. And actually, it was Lynette who who brought up this uh, this this made this observation in in our class discussion last uh, I think it was just last week. Um, is Babylon still here? No, we read about it in books. And here he writes to these folks entrenched in Rome with its power, with its gold, with its ways of life that they knew. And he says those things were how you lived in your ignorance, your lack of knowledge of God through Jesus. Those things did not in and of themselves lead to life. They are not permanent. But the promises of God, the activity of God, God's work to redeem God's own world, that is eternal, is permanent. And you're caught up in that. And you, you have had a life changed, Peter says, even though you haven't seen Jesus, though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him. And this makes you celebrate with glorious joy. You can't even express And so, this is, Peter says, your, your strangeness. Your, your sense of feeling estranged from the world you knew is actually because you are growing up into salvation, being more and more redeemed. And God is making you into a place where God can bring others into that story. Regardless of what ways your ordinary life unfolds, God is actually working in your life. God is washing you, making you new, and making that new life possible. And so there are things, Peter says, that, that some things that have to be put away. He says this, this work that Jesus did in, among you had an effect. It created this brotherly and sisterly love that you have. He could say the same thing to us. We, we are here because we are seeking Jesus and trying to grow up into that salvation that was seeded in us through the Word of God. Nobody here uh, proclaimed the Gospel to me first. That happened somewhere else. But I am drawn into this process here with you, connected to people all through time and space in these new kinds of relationships that are defined and made possible by this love that you see in Jesus. And so to participate in it, what do you do? You love one another eagerly. And to do so, you set aside some things. Peter says you set aside, first of all, this interesting word, dolon. It gets translated as guile, <clears throat> cunning, um, literally has the sense of bait, baiting. He said, you set, you set aside baiting? Um, you know, Jesus, when Jesus uh, appears in the Gospel of John, he's described as the one in whom there is no dolon, in whom there is no guile. <laughs> this love that you've seen in Jesus that has brought you into a loving relationship with the Father, that has brought you into life and is redeeming you from sin and death, a life that builds toward death into an eternal life with God. 
You saw it in this one, this one who suffered, this one who was crucified, this one who announced the kingdom of God. There was no cunning, no baiting. It was real. And he says, so you don't bait. What else don't you do? You don't. Don't be hypocrites. Hypocrisies. Don't don't participate like one in a theater show. Don't dress up and present yourself to a story that you know to be false because you think it's beneficial for yourself or for others. Don't play act. Tell the truth with your whole self. Yes, you may still have to be where you are enmeshed in the structures you are in, but be one who is trying to tell the story of Jesus and be set your hope firmly down on the grace being brought to you in that uh, wherever you are and with one another especially. And don't be envious. Thanos, it gets uh, translated as envy, but it's kind of, it, it has a sense too of, of almost wishing ill on somebody else. Uh, it has a sense of being competitive and and wanting honor so badly that you that you might take pleasure in another person's downfall. Don't uh, Paul talks about these, this thing in different ways, in, in talking about grasping. You know, be, be like Jesus with one another. Pour yourself out. Love one another. Seek life for one another. Seek the best for others. And don't talk maliciously about others. Peter says this new life, this strangeness you're experiencing... This thing that seems so hard to see. Yes, you may have trials in front of you, but you have been made new, washed, redeemed. You are receiving and experiencing salvation all because of a message brought to you about someone you've never even personally seen, but you know they are alive and active and working in your life. That the... God was revealed to you and is now known to you as the one who raised Jesus from the dead and that's your future too. And he says, desire this. Desire this that's happening even if it's strange. Grow into it, toward it. Work with it. Long for like a baby who longs for milk. Desire it. Nobody wants to be a baby. We want to be competent. We want to do the things we learned to do from the time we were little, and we want to do them well, and we want to get credit for them. Paul says, no, you've been born into a new life. Long for it, desire for that to continue, because it's God working, and it is incorruptible, imperishable, and eternal. It leads to life, not death. And he says that it is, so it's not baiting. It's, it's the, the milk that is without dolon, without guile. It's real, and in that sense, it's logikos. The translation up here says that as it's, I think it's the, the milk of the word of God, but logikos is a word we get logic from. It has this sense that what you're desiring, this life that's coming from God and what God has done in Jesus corresponds to reality. It's true. It's not some needless thing that's not actually connected to the sensible, actual nature of things. It's not rolling dice 
to see what's going to happen tomorrow. It's, this is God, the one who made the world working. And to, to grow into it is to participate in something that is real, that is true. And Peter says at the end, in the final flourish, and this is where we'll end, he, with this amazing wordplay, he just says, you know, it can be hard to see, and it can be. It can be easy to look at flesh that is itself leading to death and knowing old ways that, that, that you knew in your ignorance that, that actually work toward death and not toward this kind of life that God makes possible. And he said, but, but even though you haven't seen this one, and even though we don't see him now, he says it has been experiential. Everything he's described in these whole two chapters is the fact that there is something going on inside you, inside me, inside of our shared life that you can feel, you can sense. It's changing you one whisper, one step at a time one new relationship with a fellow brother or sister who's also been touched by Jesus and called by this one who is holy and different because they're in relationship with God. It is happening. It's something that you can even taste. (laughs) He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the wordplay in the Greek there is amazing. It comes from Psalm 34, a, a psalm about rescue and salvation. It says the person, the psalmist testifies that, that he's tasted that, that, that the Lord is good. And so he wants more of that God and wants to be with that God. But the word for good is Christos, which sounds a whole lot like Christos. He's saying even the word for good rhymes with the Messiah that has been revealed to you, with the life that has been made known in this one. It is good. It is Christos. And somehow this one is God. The Lord is Christos. The Lord is The Messiah, Yahweh, is working in this one. And we are drawn drawn into God through this one's story. And so we live into that. We desire it. We desire to be shaped and molded by that and grow up into salvation in, in a way that's often primarily expressed and experienced in the mutual love that's created between human beings here, this deep peace. Please pray with me. Father, we are called not by a philosophy, not by some secret code, not by the next great thinker, but we are called by you, God, creator of the world, through your Son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to grow 
into that reality, to trust it. And in so doing, for salvation not just to be something that is kept safe for us, an inheritance that's retained for us and, that's, and, and to have ourselves be guarded for it, but also, Lord, to experience it now as we gird up our minds, Lord, and remain clear-headed and try to think and see the way that Your imperishable Word and Your actions, God, are breaking into our daily lives, delivering us from patterns that lead to death and giving us over into lives where love of one another is really possible and where we can confidently know that we are deeply loved by you, our Father, and that we can grow up into that. Help us, dear Lord, to desire it, to know that it's real, it's not a trick, to see it in your Son, Jesus. And God, help us then to also not be dismayed when we also share in his sufferings because we live in a world that crucified him. But help us, Lord, to conduct our ourselves with reverent fear and awe over the life that leads to resurrection as we pick up our crosses in whatever way, small or large, we're asked to, uh, to follow your Son here in our own way, in our own time, in our own place, in this city or in whatever city we call home, dear Lord. Let us live there and carry out our time of exile with you and your glory and the hope that comes through Jesus as the primary markers of our life. We pray all this in the name of your son Jesus, our precious King. Amen.